0: This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's Community Access Media Organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello and welcome once again to our discussion. In following Nomcow Pal's Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, we've been examining giving up everything in life so that we aren't left clinging to anything at the time of death. We can, as the teachings recommend, leave like a bird leaves a bare rock. And why? Because if we cling on to anything or any person while we are dying, we will probably have a very unhappy death and consequently an unfortunate next life. Well, imagine lying on your deathbed knowing that you must say goodbye forever to all the things and people that matter so much to you in life. Nothing can go with us at death time not even the smallest trace of gold, not even the smallest remembrance of our loved one. It is cheers and goodbye forever. Now really, what would that be like? Pretty awful if you are very attached to the things or people of this life. So we are encouraged to give everything away before that fateful moment, even our bodies, which is what we have been particularly discussing over the last couple of programs, seeing that the body is probably the one thing we are most attached to in this life. It is like that prose poem by Robert Haas called A Story About the Body. Although in the poem the attachment is to somebody else's body, we can apply the same realization to our own. Haas writes, The young composer, working that summer at an artist's colony, had watched her for a week. She was Japanese, a painter, almost 60, and he thought he was in love with her. He loved her work, and her work was like the way she moved her body, used her hands, looked at him directly when she mused, and considered answers to his questions. One night, walking back from a concert, they came to her door and she turned to him and said, I think you would like to have me. I would like that too, but I must tell you that I have had a double mastectomy. And when he didn't understand, I have lost both my breasts. The radiance that he'd carried around in his belly and chest, cavity-like, music withered quickly, and he made himself look at her when he said, I'm sorry, I don't think I could. He walked back to his own cabin through the pines, and in the morning he found a small blue bowl on the porch outside his door. It looked to be full of rose petals, but he found when he picked it up that the rose petals were on top. The rest of the bowl she must have swept the corners of her studio, was full of dead bees. So it is with our attachment to our body. What appears on the surface to be a thing of so much delight becomes, and actually always is, something that is not so delightful underneath. And it causes us so much stress and effort in its constant, incessant demands. And yet, as we said last week, Our body is also our vehicle to enlightenment. So it's not that we should see the body as an enemy, as Shantideva would have us do, but rather something to be cared for and properly maintained for our onward journey to enlightenment. It is only an inappropriate attachment to the body that causes the problem, not the body itself. As we heard last week from Philip Moffat, by deeply exploring the truth and integrity of the body you will gradually form a basis for a spiritual practice. This does not sound like an enemy to me. Now, just for a bit of context. This discussion comes in response to the part of mind training like the rays of the sun that discusses the five powers or forces that we should focus on at death time. There are the power of the white seed, the power of intention, the power of remorse, the power of prayer and the power of familiarity we went through them as an integrated practice for a lifetime, so those of you who are with us will have some idea of what they are. The power of the white seed here means firstly purifying all the negative karma that will cause problems in the future, and then also giving up all our attachments, and especially attachment to the body as the basis for the misconception of how the I exists. And as we know, all our problems and difficulties can in due course be traced back to that misconception. But I think we've spent enough time on this and should move on to the other four powers of the time of death. Before we do that though, let's take a moment to think about our motivation for participating in the program today. Remember that the greatest motivation is to attain enlightenment so we can be of greatest benefit to all beings. Because the object that is all beings is so vast, the positive potential on our minds is also great. So, if you can, make this thought, which we call bodhicitta, be your motivation for today. Otherwise, at least think of your own attainment of enlightenment. Thank you. After the power of the white seed, the next four powers we are encouraged to develop while we are still alive and kicking are led by the power of intention. Namkha Pell doesn't go through these powers in any depth as he's already covered them before as an integrated lifetimes practice. For example, for the power of intention he says, As explained above, we should have three types of intention related to the long, medium and short terms. And that's it. Now if you were with us, you may remember what he said before. But if you've forgotten or were not tuned in, this basically means... We must have the intention not to be dominated in any of our activities by any afflictive emotion, major or minor, from now until we attain enlightenment. He says, From now until I attain enlightenment, or at any time in this life until I die, this year, this month, and today in particular. We also have to strongly determine that we will continuously familiarize ourselves with and never be separated from Bodhicitta until we become enlightened at any time in this life until I die, this year, this month, and today in particular. And that is the power of intention. Lama Zopa Rinpoche in his commentary has this to say, With devotion totally give yourself up to the triple gem, completely relying on Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. Motivate very strongly again and again that you will never allow yourself to come under the control of the self-cherishing thought and never separate away from bodhicitta, uh, As I said, Bodhicitta is the intention to attain enlightenment so we can be of greatest benefit to all other beings. Lama Zopa goes on, Think, from now until I achieve enlightenment, especially up to the point of death, while I am dying in the intermediate state and in all future lives, I will never allow myself to come under the control of self-cherishing and I will never separate from Bodhicitta. Think, Particularly this year, this month and all 24 hours of today, I will never separate from Bodhicitta. Motivate very strongly in this way and then you won't be separated from Bodhicitta. Set the intention and make a strong dedication to be really careful for however many seconds there are from now up to the time of death. Put your full effort into this, just as someone crossing over a dangerous bridge would have to pay full attention to make sure not to fall off. This is very, very important because no matter how many negative karmas you have created in this life if you are able to practice at the time of death it has great benefit. To be able to recognize the signs at the time of death and immediately and easily apply meditations such as the tantric methods for the time of death or the thought transformation practice of the five powers depends on having practiced every day and especially so when you are sick. Otherwise, even if you can explain these practices with your mouth, if you've not actually attempted to do them, it won't benefit. It can't benefit at all. So think, I will never give self-grasping delusions and the nearing delusions, and this means the six main and twenty secondary delusions, any chance to arise. I will never allow my conduct of body, speech and mind to be under the control of these obscuring, disturbing emotional thoughts. I will not allow myself to come under the control of self-cherishing until I achieve enlightenment, from now until I die and especially today. And I will never separate from Bodhicitta from now until I achieve enlightenment, from now until I die and especially today. That's Lama She, and that covers the second power, the power of intention. Then the power of remorse. Nam says, Remembering the disadvantages of the disturbing emotions, we should protect ourselves from being overwhelmed by them, like putting our intentions into action. Now, Lama Rinpoche has quite a lot to say about this. He calls it the power of blaming the ego and says, as the great Bodhisattva Shantideva said in Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, as long as you don't drop the fire, the burning won't stop. In the same way, As long as you don't let go of the I, suffering can't be abandoned. And also, if the self is not exchanged for others, enlightenment cannot be achieved. There is no happiness even in samsara. Therefore, to pacify your own sufferings and the sufferings of others, give yourself up for others and cherish others as yourself. Leave aside happiness in the life beyond this one. Even the works of this life cannot be achieved. Lama Zopa continues, All the problems we experience in this life, including sickness, relationship problems, and all the other problems, come from cherishing the self. All of these problems are a commentary to the teachings on the shortcomings of the self-cherishing thought. Every one of these problems comes from the self-cherishing thought. Therefore put all the blame for these on the self-cherishing thought. Self-cherishing is the root of all problems. It is the cause of all obstacles and of every other undesirable thing we experience. As it is mentioned in the teachings, and this again comes from Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, however much happiness there is in the world, all comes from cherishing others. However much suffering there is, all comes from cherishing the self. What more is there to say? The childish work for themselves and the mighty one, that's the Buddha, works for others. Namra says, Even Buddha was once the same as us, having all the same delusions and problems. But because Buddha gave up the self and cherished others, he was able to complete the path of method and wisdom and not only achieve liberation from all the oceans of samsaric sufferings, but also cease all the gross and subtle defilements and achieve the two kayas, Dharmakaya and Rupakaya. Now in case you don't know what Dharmakaya and Rupakaya are, The Lama Yeshi Archive defines the Dharmakaya as the truth body of a Buddha, the blissful, omniscient mind of a Buddha, the result of the wisdom side of the path. And the Rupakaya it defines as the form body of a fully enlightened being, the result of the complete and perfect accumulation of merit. It has two aspects, Sambhogakaya, that's the enjoyment body, in which the enlightened mind appears to benefit highly realized bodhisattvas, and Namanakaya, or the emanation body in which the enlightened mind appears to benefit ordinary beings. So Rupakaya includes both Sambhogakaya and Namanakaya. To bring a little more understanding, here is an explanation by chogron Krumpa. Dharmakaya has no categories. Dharmakaya is simply being awake. It is the first achievement of a Buddha, the first glimpse of Vajra-like samadhi. Vajra-like samadhi means cutting through everything completely and thoroughly. You cut through psychological and spiritual materialism and you cut through the notion of perfectionism as well. At this stage there may be uncertainty as how to perceive things and you don't know how to make a particular situation graspable. Our reaction to the world is uncertain and bewildered and strategies and planning have not yet formed. The Dharmakaya aspect is ba- basic openness or ambiguity. We could say that a Buddha actually sees the world from a non-reference point of view. They see that the world can exist without a reference point, that reference points are no longer applicable. When you possess such an enlightened view, you attain Dharmakaya, the body of non-reference point. Dharma means the highest norm of the universe, which is non-reference point. Kaya refers to the achievement of that particular experience. With no praise and no blame, we accept and realize our thought process as it is, but with a touch of non-fixation and without holding on to thoughts. In the Namaikaya aspect, the second stage of this process, there is clarity. You develop a clear idea of the situation and how to organize things. According to my tradition, that is the realistic way of looking at things. Even if you're a great teacher or a Buddha, you still have a body and that body behaves more or less the same as other people's bodies. The necessities of eating, shitting, wearing clothes and combing your hair are basically the same as anybody else's. It is in that acceptance of the universe, within that particular frame of reference, that the Namanakaya Buddha functions. Third, you begin to make a relationship between the two. In order to make a link between the openness and clarity we have the third aspect or Sambhogakaya. The Sambhogakaya bridges the gap between the basic openness or ambiguity of Dharmakaya and the very specific organized clarity of Namanakaya. So the three kayas are the subtle world, the direct world and that which goes back and forth between the subtle and direct worlds in order to survive on earth. Sambhogakaya means complete joy. It is beyond any kind of inhibition. Having gone through constant struggle and discipline of practicing the Bodhisattva's work of compassion, whatever you feel can be communicated or taught. There is a need for articulation. You have to do something. You have to proclaim. However, you can't just say, come and look at me. You have to be very skillful, particularly if you proclaim yourself as an enlightened person for then you have a heavier burden. So the Sambhogakaya involves a sense of relationship, as in being able to relate. You know the place, you know what kind of crowd you're going to get, and you know what you're going to say. This communication between your non-manifested and manifested levels includes all forms of communication, such as physical gestures, facial expressions, and how you present yourself in all kinds of ways. That is Chogyam Trungpa's explanation. But now to return to Lama's Oparamshay. He says that not only was the Buddha able to give up the self and cherish others, achieve liberation from all samsaric sufferings, cease all gross and subtle defilements and achieve the two kayas, he was also able to show numberless sentient beings the path to liberation and enlightenment. He says, Through this, numberless sentient beings in this world have been liberated from all their sufferings And achieved enlightenment. And then goes on In a similar way, Buddha has liberated numberless sentient beings in many other universes from the oceans of samsaric suffering and brought them to enlightenment. In every second, Buddha is enlightening numberless beings, effortlessly and spontaneously working for sentient beings until every one of them is brought to enlightenment. All of this is because Buddha simply changed his attitude and instead of cherishing I, cherished others. Now think, because I have always been a child and never changed my attitude but only cherished myself since beginningless rebirth I have not achieved full enlightenment nor have I achieved liberation from samsara. Indeed, I have been experiencing the oceans of general samsaric sufferings and particularly the oceans of hell being sufferings the oceans of preta being sufferings the oceans of animal sufferings the oceans of human sufferings, the oceans of sura sufferings, the oceans of azura sufferings and the oceans of intermediate being sufferings numberless times since beginningless rebirth. It is most terrifying to think that the self-cherishing thought has made me suffer from time without beginning. It hasn't allowed me to achieve the gradual path common to the lower capable being, the gradual path common to the middle capable being or the gradual path common to the higher capable being. It hasn't allowed me to achieve any realizations not even the realizations of guru devotion and perfect human rebirth. Nor has it allowed me to achieve the realizations of the very beginning stages of the path to enlightenment of death and impermanence or karma. My mental continuum has been totally empty of attainments from beginningless rebirth. This self-cherishing thought is what causes me the greatest harm. It is more harmful than anything else. Not only that, but as long as the self-cherishing thought abides in my heart, I will never achieve enlightenment. I will not even achieve liberation from samsara. I won't achieve any realizations of the stages of the path and instead will experience the general sufferings of samsara and particularly the oceans of sufferings of the hell realm, the oceans of suffering of the preta realm, the oceans of suffering of the animal realm, the oceans of suffering of the human realm, the oceans of suffering of the Sura realm, the oceans of suffering of the Asura realm, and the oceans of sufferings of the intermediate state over and over again without end. Lama Zopa goes on to say further, there's no worse, more harmful, more frightening, or more dangerous thought than the self-cherishing thought, considering all the harm it has done in the past and all the harm it will cause in the future without end. It is the self-cherishing thought that brings every difficulty to all the people in the world, from the beggar up to the king, prime minister or billionaire. It brings a bad reputation whether you are high or low. It is due to self-cherishing thought that attachment, anger, all kinds of ignorance and other delusions arise. Then you engage in actions that harm others because your only goal is to achieve happiness for yourself. You take advantage of others by harming, cheating or deceiving them, giving them hardships and difficulties and making them experience undesirable situations. If you constantly follow the self-cherishing thought as well as attachment and anger, then whatever actions you do towards others is never positive but only negative. You cause others to suffer and as a result receive every kind of bad reputation. You have to go to prison. you are fined. You go through court cases. You are sued and lose so much money. Take the example of alcoholics. They waste their whole life. They are not able to practice meditation, to live righteously or even to lead a normal person's life. They can't do their job. They harm their body and they harm their family. When their minds are out of control, they start fighting and beat the family. They go crazy and even kill others and endanger their own lives. Their whole life becomes like this, very sad, very hallucinated. It is similar with people who steal, doing it over and over again because of following the self-cherishing thought instead of practicing renunciation and contentment. They constantly make problems for themselves. Again and again they get into trouble with the police and earn a bad reputation. Even though you don't want to suffer all these different kinds of punishment, you have to experience them again and again. Even though you don't want all these difficulties to happen, again and again you have to face them. Even if nobody else kills you, you end up killing yourself by committing suicide. When emotional problems come and you can't handle them, the easiest, most immediate conclusion is to kill yourself. There's no space in your mind to think of another solution. When non-virtuous and immoral actions have been done, and negative karma has been collected, then emotional problems come. At that time, your luck is low, your good karma is weak, and your negative karma is heavy. So it's easy to receive harm from spirits who influence your mind, to kill or think of suicide. It makes people think about jumping to their death and doing all sorts of things that normally they would never think of. It is the same with attachment and anger. When you follow the self-cherishing thought you can't control these negative minds. These are some of the shortcomings of the self-cherishing thought. Another example is the way so many people in the world suffer from relationship problems. They experience all these different problems one after another and again it's very clear that this is due to the shortcomings of the self-cherishing thought. All the problems that we experience in relationships are due to self-cherishing thought. It is because of self-cherishing that attachment arises and by following it people kill their husband or their wife or other people. On a larger scale self-cherishing is the cause of all wars. War is a very clear example of self-cherishing. Self-cherishing invades one person's mind and heart along with pride and attachment. Then that person uses their power and wealth to harm and kill many millions of people in this world. By doing so that person collects so much unimaginable negative karma that it is difficult to see how they could ever come back to the human realm again. It is difficult to imagine how they could ever escape the lower realms and take an ordinary human rebirth again. And it is difficult to imagine the inconceivably heavy sufferings that they will have to experience for eons and eons. Not only that, but when there is a war, many millions of other human beings suffer the number of animals that suffer is even greater. Even when Dharma practitioners make mistakes are unable to correctly devote to the virtuous friend, this is also due to the self-cherishing thought. If you let go of the self-cherishing thought and surrender to the virtuous friend, then you can correctly devote yourself to the virtuous friend. If you follow the self-cherishing thought instead of following the virtuous friend, then the self-cherishing thought doesn't like to engage in practices or follow the advice of a virtuous friend. So it is following what the self-cherishing thought wants that makes you break the advice, give rise to heresy, anger and negative thoughts to the virtuous friend and harm the virtuous friend. All the obstacles to practicing Dharma, generating realizations and quickly achieving liberation and enlightenment are due to the self-cherishing thought. Self-cherishing thought creates problems for you and due to self-cherishing thought you are unable to practice and instead make mistakes with a virtuous friend. From this, you can see very clearly the shortcomings of the self-cherishing thought. It harms the root of the path correctly devoting to a virtuous friend, which in turn harms all the realizations up to enlightenment. Self-cherishing harms you by preventing you from being able to liberate and enlighten numberless sentient beings. In this way, it interferes with and harms the welfare of numberless sentient beings. There are countless other ways that self-cherishing harms our Dharma practice. For example, shamatha or calm abiding, the high training of concentration, is the basis for the high training of wisdom, great insight, and also the basis for achieving the Arya path, the wisdom directly perceiving emptiness, which directly ceases all the defilements both the disturbing thought's obscuration and the simultaneously born obscuration. Without this wisdom directly perceiving emptiness, one cannot achieve a liberation, the state of everlasting happiness. Self-cherishing thought creates obstacles for us to achieve shamatha. First of all, self-cherishing causes desire and attachment to arise towards this life. It makes us afraid of taking vows or precepts so, we have no interest in them and reject them. Then, even if we do take vows, self cherishing doesn't allow us to live purely in them. Not being able to live purely in the vows is yet another shortcoming of self cherishing. Since self cherishing interferes with our practice of pure morality, it harms our ability to achieve shamata, calm abiding meditation. Once we have one pointed concentration, We can concentrate as long as we wish, because our minds are free from scattering thought and sinking thought, which are the two obstacles to perfect concentration. Even while we are attempting to gain calm abiding, self-cherishing doesn't allow us to be successful. It gives us many obstacles, many emotional thoughts, and then we are not able to continue or complete the meditation. So we can see the harm of the self-cherishing thought. Now at this point we have to stop as time is up. Thanks for joining the program today, and please do so again next week. Please remember also to dedicate any positive potential from the program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts.